Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. In the early years of the Second World War, while most of the energies of the United States government focused on the European front, the Pacific theater was largely relegated to the periphery. Dealing with war on just one front is draining for a country, and for the United States in World War II, there were simply not enough resources to fight the war adequately on both fronts. As a result, the Pacific theater was somewhat neglected, and members of the armed forces in the Pacific would pay a heavy price for the Europe-first strategy. But it was not just men in the armed forces who experienced hardships. Caught by surprise by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and their eventual takeover of the Philippine Islands, some female members of the armed forces ended up caught in the middle of the conflict and were taken as prisoners of war. Serving as army and navy nurses, around a hundred of these women were eventually captured in the Philippines. At the time, they made up a tiny fraction of women serving in the army and navy, but their captivity drew considerable anxious attention from the American people. This month's podcast will explore the story of these captured nurses. Since the American Revolution, American women have served officially or unofficially as military nurses. The Spanish-American War marked the first time that women were actually hired by the military to be nurses, but World War I is often recognized as the watershed moment in women's military history because of the record number of women who enlisted in the service at this time. It was also a war that made female nurses an iconic, romantic part of American culture. When the war ended, women continued to play an organized, professional role in the military. By the 1930s, for many young women, being an army nurse meant a life of adventure and independence, a thrilling alternative to the normal, routine life they would be expected to lead stateside. Those stationed in places like Manila could look forward to a life of luxury accompanied by easy nursing shifts. For the women we will be talking about today, this is exactly the life they led prior to 1941. They danced, swam, and ate delicious food prepared by Filipino cooks. Filipino maids and houseboys helped around their rooms, and no nurse's wardrobe was complete without her evening gown and swimsuit. The hospital rarely held many serious cases, and work was easy for the 87 army nurses and 12 navy nurses stationed in the Philippines. The islands were exotic, and at the time not seen as dangerous. Indeed, Manila was a tropical paradise. All that changed suddenly on December 7, 1941, with the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Within nine hours of the first attack, the Japanese struck the Philippines, shattering the idyllic lifestyle of the nurses. The first bombs fell near Camp John Hay Hospital at Baggio, shortly followed by the Army Air Corps base at Clark Field. For reasons that are still unexplained today, MacArthur's Air Force suffered crippling losses. These raids flooded the hospitals with military and civilian casualties, and for the first time, military nurses faced impossibly long shifts and terrible injuries. The situation continued to deteriorate, and later in December 1941, the Japanese invaded the Philippines. 
Eventually, MacArthur was forced to withdraw with his forces to the Bataan Peninsula and the island of Corregidor. MacArthur himself would take up residence on Corregidor, setting up his headquarters in the Malinta Tunnel. When orders came to evacuate Manila, Josie Nesbitt, acting chief nurse, began slipping out her nurses two dozen at a time to a hospital in the Malinta Tunnel and to field hospitals on Bataan. Before long, all of the army nurses and one of the navy nurses had been moved. Unfortunately, eleven navy nurses were left behind because they arrived too late for their arranged transport. Unable to evacuate, these women shocked the Japanese soldiers occupying Manila. The Japanese sent these strange women in uniform to Santo Tomas University, which had been turned into Santo Tomas internment camp to hold civilian prisoners of war. On Bataan, the army nurses were to evade capture a few months longer in an area considered by medical authorities to be the worst malarial breeding ground in the Philippines. As if that wasn't bad enough, the peninsula was hardly well stocked. General MacArthur had planned to fight the Japanese further upland and had located stocks of food and equipment accordingly. When they were forced to retreat to Bataan and Corregidor, many of these supplies were lost or had to be abandoned. MacArthur continued to offer encouraging messages to the army, promising help was on the way. Some appreciated this, but it caused others to grumble. In any case, there were no signs of relief. On Bataan, a surgeon named Dr. Duckworth decided to move the hospital inland. Just a few days after the move, the first hospital base was attacked by the Japanese. A second hospital was set up in even rougher conditions. These conditions bonded the army nurses together like never before. Equipment had to be salvaged from previous hospital locations, and at first tables and refrigerators served as beds for patients. Bamboo was used to construct virtually any necessity. Hospital number two boasted open-air wards, 17 altogether, each holding between 200 and 500 patients. It was near many common bombing targets, and as a result, shells and bullets frequently fell around the hospital. Despite these hardships the women faced, there was still a strange sense of normalcy, and the nurses kept their own quarters for bathing and sleeping. Conditions continued to decline. Malaria and dysentery were endemic on Bataan, even among the medical staff, and by the end of February, the food supply was down to about a thousand calories a day per person. Still, the American men and women were resilient. The much stronger Japanese army found they could not capture the Americans alone, and had to call in reinforcements. These reinforcements would begin to wear down the weary, hungry Americans. Learning that on March 11th, following orders from Washington, General Douglas MacArthur had left Corregidor and gone to Australia, was a terrible blow to those left behind. From Australia, MacArthur praised the forces he had left behind, and declared there must be no thought of surrender. He also promised that he would return. For the time being, though, no true help was given or was even available to the soldiers and nurses in the Pacific Theater. General Jonathan Wainwright, who had assumed command of Bataan and Corregidor after MacArthur left, was determined to hold out with his meager forces. Even when it became clear that Bataan was falling, Wainwright ordered an attack on the Japanese. In spite of this heroism, on April 8th, Wainwright ordered the Bataan nurses evacuated to Corregidor. He met with some fierce resistance. Where a man might find honor in protecting women or not running away from a fight, the women of war found their duty and honor in protecting their patients, whom they were now being ordered to abandon. For many of the nurses, leaving their helpless, defenseless patients in their beds was unthinkable. Eventually, though, 
The head nurses, Edith Shacklett at Hospital No. 1 and Josie Nesbitt at Hospital No. 2, agreed to comply, but not before Nesbitt fought for her Filipino nurses, too. She had been ordered only to evacuate her army nurses, but she made sure to save the Filipinos and civilian nurses as well. All of the women made it across the water to the Malinta Tunnel Hospital, though the nurses from Hospital No. 2 had quite a scare as they arrived late and had to eventually travel in a motorboat threatened by bombs. Shortly after their departure, Bataan fell. In the next days, thousands of the men left behind would lose their lives on what came to be known as the Bataan Death March. Those who survived were kept in equally deadly prisoner-of-war camps. Corregidor continued to hold strong for several more weeks. Roughly 10,000 people lived in the Malinta Tunnel on Corregidor, including in that approximation Maud Davison and Josie Nesbitt, the pair in charge of 85 army nurses, 26 Filipino nurses, one Navy nurse, and many civilian women. Conditions in the Malinta Tunnel were crowded at best, and often disorienting. Being underground, one was never really sure whether it was day or night. In addition, the stagnant air caused boils and respiratory problems. To cope, the nurses would hold impromptu sing-alongs. A few weeks after the baton nurses arrived in the tunnel, two seaplanes ran the Japanese blockade around Corregidor. They brought much-needed supplies. MacArthur requested that civilian dependents, staff experts and cryptographers, and any older officers be sent on the plane's return trip to safety. General Wainwright also decided to send twenty nurses, who Maud Davison helped to pick. The nurses sent home were older women, or those who were ill or wounded, or those inclined to hysterics. Frustratingly for some nurses, some younger, capable women were also chosen to be evacuated, mainly those who were romantically attached. Not all chosen to evacuate were happy about it. Indeed, Josie Nesbitt and Anne Wirtz were included on the list, but elected to stay, so people older or sicker than them could leave. The seaplanes, which left on April 29th, had agreed to rendezvous on the island of Mindanao and wait there until evening in order to fly in the dark and avoid detection. When they tried to take off in the evening, only one of them made it. While trying to taxi in the rough waters, the second seaplane was badly damaged by a rock that tore a hole in the fuselage. As the cabin filled with water, the passengers were forced to evacuate. As the crew attempted to fix the plane, the nurses and other evacuees headed inland. In a stroke of bad luck, the plane was repaired, but with the Japanese closing on their position, the crew had to leave the nurses and other passengers behind. The thirteen women, ten of which were nurses, and two men evaded capture for two weeks, at which point the Japanese found them. The men were sent to a military prison, and the women were eventually sent to an internment camp. The passengers on the other plane arrived in Australia, and eventually made it to the United States safely. Those nurses, once they had recovered just a little, were showered with praise and awards and used in propaganda to recruit other women as nurses. Perhaps most importantly, they answered frantic letters asking questions about nurses and men left behind. Their letter-writing helped many people with what little information they could pass along about those left behind on the islands. Sadly, the press rarely knew how to portray these brave women. Were they silly girls who had lucked out because a man had sent them home? Or were they brave Amazons whose acts of bravery surpassed those of ordinary women? Whatever their identity, in 1943 Hollywood had its say when Paramount Pictures released So Proudly We Hail, starring Claudette Colbert and Veronica Lake. What movies like this demonstrated was that the nurses of World War II had become symbols of romance, patriotism, and adventure. 
even if some of the realities of their experiences and accomplishments were lost in the commercial retelling of their stories. Back on Corregidor, the bombing still carried on, but not for long. At 10 a.m., May 6, 1942, Corregidor surrendered. The remaining nurses stayed in the tunnel hospital, which was now carefully monitored by the Japanese soldiers. Maud Davison, chief nurse, ordered her nurses to keep on their medical armbands at all times to show that they were non-combatants and not to be harmed. After working in a Japanese-occupied hospital for a couple months, on July 2nd, the whole hospital was transferred. They took a boat to Manila, at which point the men were taken to prison camps and the women were taken to Santo Tomas internment camp, where the Navy nurses had been sent four months before. Santo Tomas had been a university before the war, and many teachers were interred there still. When the nurses arrived, there were about 3,800 prisoners, including children, the elderly, and married and single men and women. The group was very diverse in terms of occupation and talents. Teachers offered classes in all kinds of subjects, from science to shorthand to dance. Some internees were even allowed to play a few songs on the radio a day, and packages could even move in and out of the camp. When the nurses arrived, they were first separated from the rest of the prisoners, isolated with only two hours of exercise a day. The Japanese were not exactly sure what to do with them. As military nurses, they were not quite civilians, but their military identity was rather confusing to the Japanese. In August, they were released to live with the rest of the camp and work in the camp hospital. The nurses were pleased to join the camp life after weeks of solitude. They were not so pleased to keep up with the usual rigors of nursing, pointing out that they weren't exactly military and duty-bound anymore. But Maud Davison and Josie Nesbitt kept the group together and working. While bearable, the first year in the tiny camp was not idyllic. The nurses, along with the other prisoners, had to face bedbugs, poor food, and lines, always lines. But, as Eunice Young, a nurse who took the night shift, said, The secret to being a survivor is to keep busy. The nurses did so admirably, some even helping the Philippine resistance movement. Later, when they learned how poorly the men were being treated in the military prisons, members of the nurse corps helped to sneak food out to them. As the years pressed on, there grew to be less and less food to sneak out. In January of 1944, the Japanese civilian camps changed hands. They would no longer be watched over by the Japanese Bureau of External Affairs, but rather by the harsher War Prisoners Department. Packages in or out of the camp were ceased, and any food provided came from the Japanese army. These stocks soon ran dangerously low. Meals would consist of watery rice, or a gruel-like substance, or a sort of mushy soup. There would be vegetables, if the prisoners were lucky, and meat, only if they were very lucky. The death rate went up from two deaths per month to seven deaths per month. The Japanese erased any mention of malnutrition or starvation from these death certificates, though those causes were undoubtedly linked to almost every death. Soon, rations were down to 700 calories a day per person. Through all this hardship, the nurses kept on, though many were so weak they could hardly climb the stairs without taking a break on the first landing. On October 20th, 1944, MacArthur kept his promise when he waded ashore at Leyte. Early in January 1945, when many in the camp could scarcely go on, the American 6th Army landed at Lingayen Gulf on Luzon's north coast, 100 miles north of Santo Tomas. By February 3rd, it truly looked like the end at Santo Tomas. 
Many nurses reported a sense of something about to end, and the Japanese had placed barrels of something under the stairs. It looked as though the Japanese would blow the place up. 